all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Welcome to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddie. Welcome back to Professionally Embarrassing. We had a slightly longer break than we were intending to, but that was mostly due to Malvika gallivanting all across the country. I think she's been in India and Vietnam since last we spoke. And of course, we had a Christmas break as well. So thank you for bearing with us. But this is now Series 3, Episode 5 of Professionally Embarrassing. And we are back with a nice long breakdown of some case law that we didn't get to last year and also some recommendations for the future looking forward and hopefully a couple of interesting tweets of the week. Given it's the new year, you're probably feeling lazy and full of mince pies. We thought we'd do the hard work for you and give you a good roundup so you're back at work feeling on top of the case law. So my first case is a case about joinder of a parent to care proceedings and it came out very late in December at the end of last year, 2022, And it's an appeal against the refusal of an application by the appellant, Mr. B, to become a party to care proceedings. Now, Mr. B was in relationship with the mother when the particular subject child, C, was born, but he's not the father of C. So C is now aged five. His mother, very sadly, was detained under Section 3 of the Mental Health Act when he was five and was taken to hospital. And when he was taken to hospital, mother asked that C was cared for by Mr. B. I suppose the sort of stepfather, but at this point they're not really in a relationship. They're just people who have raised this child together. So whilst the local authority are investigating what's going on and issuing proceedings and so on, C remains in the care of Mr. B per Regulation 24 as a connected person. I'm sure we're all familiar with that. And he undertakes a special guardianship assessment, which is very positive. He's observed to communicate well with the child, offering lots of warmth and support. They have a good bond and Essentially, C identifies Mr. B as psychologically as his father, having never met his biological father. And no one seems to me, from my reading of the judgment, it's not specifically mentioned, but I don't think the father is is around or anyone's aware of who he is. Despite these reports and C enjoying a really good relationship with Mr. B during this time, by August of 2022, bear in mind the mother was detained in April, at a hearing at which Mr. B did not attend and was given no notice, the local authority considered that it had obtained further information during the special guardianship assessment that justified asking the court to amend the child's care plan so that he was placed in foster care, separated from Mr B. This information consisted of an account from Mr B's ex-wife, don't know what it says, a single allegation of assault made by the mother on the 22nd of June 2022, information about his criminal history relating to 1996 and 2013, and information from his GP about past mental health relating to 1997 and 2015. The social worker also opined that there was possible evidence of coercive and controlling behaviour by Mr B towards the mother. A statement dated the 1st of August 2022 and redacted was placed before the circuit judge who approved the change in care plan. 
No provision was included in the order for Mr B to be heard or even served. He was told that C would be removed into foster care from school and his contact was set at 90 minutes a month. This appeal particularly, sorry, I should say the case is called RE-S Children Party Status 2022 EWCA Civ 1717. The appeal itself is not an appeal against that particular order. So the order for removal from Mr B's care and the way in which it was done, according to this evidence procedurally and so on, would have caused issues anyway. But what the courts say is we are not concerned with an appeal from that order but it forms a significant moment in the sequence of events that led to the order that is under appeal and is relevant to their assessment. We have seen nothing to show that the child's safety and welfare required his immediate removal without Mr B being told that it was proposed, without him giving any explanation and without the court giving him an opportunity to be heard before or after the event. To this day, he has never been served with the statement that led to their removal. The court says they need not consider whether or not he was entitled to the specific protection of advance notice under the protocol contained in RE-DE 2014, It is simply a question of whether the process was fair. At all events, on the 15th of August 2022, the local authority filed its special guardianship report, gave a heavily redacted version of it to Mr B. And essentially, by that point, the special guardianship report was negative because of the information that had been received and circumstances that led to the removal of C from Mr B's care. So Mr B comes to court and he says, please, may I be a party to these proceedings so I can substantively challenge the special guardianship report so I can properly make representations and so I can play a role in these proceedings such that I might be a possible alternative carer for C. Now at this point the care plan for C is foster care. Mother is still not well enough to care for the children and is not making appropriate changes so at the moment the mother's not a viable possibility. Just to make it clear by the time the matter comes before the court of appeal those circumstances have changed and the local authority is working quite well with the mother and she's making really great strides. And Mr B makes it clear that of course the child should live with his mother first and only if that is not a possibility should the child move to the care of Mr B. But nonetheless at any final hearing Mr B wants to be a party and he wants to have an opportunity to make representations and he wants to access to the documents and so on and so forth. And of course the right to challenge the special guardianship assessment. What the judge does at the first instance, which leads to the appeal, is looks at Mr B's application and says that this is an application to be made as an intervener for the specific purpose of challenging the special guardianship assessment. The local authority don't seek any findings made against Mr B. The situation here is that he was assessed, he was considered, and he was essentially dismissed, and he wants to challenge that conclusion. The judge says, in those circumstances, it would be very unusual, it seems to me, for the potential special guardianship to either be made a party or an intervener. And he's rightly pointed to the test under Section 10.9 of the Children Act, which is about application for leave to make a child arrangements order. And he's correctly referred to the case of Re B 2012, which talks about Joinder as a party. Nonetheless, the judge essentially makes the conclusion at the first instance that Mr B's case is so hopeless, that the evidence is so overwhelming, that there's no point making him a party because his case is doomed to failure and he's entitled to challenge the special guardianship assessment with a statement without needing to be joined as a party. So the judge says at first instance, as I have said, it's not necessary for Mr B to be a party or an intervener. He can do so as in challenge the assessment, such that information he wishes to put forward is before the court and with the local authority. There is no other legitimate role in these proceedings put forward by Mr B justifying his application. Considering the special guardianship assessment and the evidence before me, I share the local authority and the guardian's concerns about what it raises. And it does seem to me to be evident that it would inevitably mean that any application for leave by Mr B to make a Section 8 order application or to be joined as party is to be refused. So he's refused an application to be joined as party and he seeks permission to appeal that order. Now, by the time, as I say, the matter comes before the court, the picture has shifted slightly on the ground. But nonetheless, the court takes through the parties the appropriate test for joinder 
and looks at what should have been done by the recorder at first instance. So the first ground of appeal on behalf of Mr B is that the recorder failed to properly consider and assess the factors in section 10.9 and failed to assess whether Mr B had an arguable case. The second ground of appeal is that the determination was unfair in that it gave Mr B no opportunity to challenge the reasons behind C's removal from his care or put his case at any stage. Under this ground, it's also to be noted that in reaching this conclusion, the recorder had the advantage, which we do not share, of seeing the unredacted special guardianship report and the unredacted statement of the social worker. The counsel for the local authority who attended the appeal made it clear that what he had seen in those unredacted documents is essentially the same as the information relied upon in the recorder's decision. So there's nothing particular that the court needs to see that would mean the decision was safe. The third ground of appeal is that the recorder was wrong to exclude Mr B when there was no basis and evidence for doing so. The only evidence was that filed by the local authority, Mr B not having had the opportunity to file a statement himself. And the last ground of appeal contends that the recorder placed too much weight on alternative options that were available to Mr B in this case. There was no consideration of how he could file a statement, seek another assessment or challenge the local authority's assessment without being a party to the case. Apart from the problem of a lack of standing, it's confirmed that Mr B would not be eligible for legal aid and would have to represent himself at any final hearing or attend any final hearing unrepresented and without party status. So the respondents, obviously, the local authority and the Guardian both raise a number of concerns about the appeal made by Mr B. However, the court essentially go on to say, in approaching the application made by Mr B, the court needed to consider the broad contours of these care proceedings. The best outcome, by unanimous consent, would be for the mother to be able to recover the care of the children. There is a, a sibling involved as well. However, at the time of the recorder's decision, there was no certainty about that. If it could not happen, the local authority would be likely to seek a placement order for the younger child, but that option would not be available for C, the subject child in this particular appeal. The only alternative to foster care for him would be a placement with Mr B. In any event, the issue of contact was likely to arise. Against that backdrop, there are, in my view, two difficulties with the order under appeal. The first is that the recorder could not legitimately determine on the basis of the available information that any application made by Mr B would inevitably fail and therefore there was no role at all for him to play in the proceedings. The court's task at that point was, to borrow a turn of phrase from REW 2016, to decide whether this case was a runner, not whether it was a winner. And I think that's a really good way of looking at the test for joinder, a nice simple bit of law for you to remember there from REW, is it a runner or is it a winner? In making that judgment, the salient features that should have led to the court to grant the application were these. One, the importance for C of his relationship with Mr B, obviously. The lack of any similar important adult relationship apart from with his mother, as I say, no father on the scene. The relatively moderate gravity of unproven allegations made against Mr B. I mean, how far can a court really take allegations made by an ex-wife and an ex-partner without either seeking findings, which the local authority weren't, or conducting a proper fact-finding and finding out what happened? Four, the requirements of natural justice, in particular the circumstances of C's removal from his approved interim carer. Now, I don't doubt that people listening to the circumstance of that removal will have been quite shocked. It, it did happen in such a way that can't possibly have been in the interests of this child, given his connection and his bond with Mr B. Five, the benefit to the court in having all realistic options before it for C's sake. Six, the inability of Mr B to participate effectively without party status in circumstances where all parties had dismissed his case and he would need to fight by himself. And seven, the need to avoid delay. With the assistance of Section 10.9, the recorder should have identified that the nature of the proposed intervention was appropriate to the circumstances, whether or not it would ultimately be successful, that the appellant had an unusually strong connection with the child for someone who was not a relative, and that there was no significant risk of intervention harming the child. It is undoubtedly the case that Mr B is second best to a natural parent, but that did not make his case unworthy of consideration. 
The local authorities' plan had abruptly changed and its presentation could, in certain respects, be considered tendentious, while the mother had at least ostensibly also changed her position towards Mr B after years of reliance upon him. Had the recorder considered these matters squarely, he would, in my view, have been bound to conclude that Mr B had an arguable case sufficient to satisfy the test of joinder. And I thought this was a really interesting case because I think these kind of things come up quite a lot, especially in circumstances where there's been community or family care of a child before a parent or someone with PR is taken away or not able to care for the child. There are often non-relatives and often, you know, ex-partners or cousins or aunts or whatever it might be who are on the scene caring for the child on the ground, who have a good relationship with them, whose role in care proceedings is really minimised and often really overlooked as someone who is a legitimate option for these children in the face of local authority care, even on an interim basis. And I think this decision is really important to emphasise that and also to emphasise that the court is really shifting its approach to foster care and adoption as any kind of viable option when there is a realistic alternative. And I just think it's a really helpful decision to have in relation to whether you should be joined as a party or whether you should be allowed to challenge without party status. Clearly, party status is necessary to allow people who are not related to the child or wouldn't otherwise have standing to effectively participate in proceedings. So it's a good little case to have on hand, I think. That is very helpful and a a reminder of the importance of the principles of natural justice, common law principles of fairness, which sometimes just seem to go down the toilet and often go unchallenged because, as you said, Mr B was unrepresented and maybe without the right legal advice may never have sought to appeal this decision and would have been exactly where he was before. So thanks for that, Maddie. My second case, I'd be really interested to see what you think of this case because I was a little bit conflicted about it. It's the decision of Mr Justice Williams in Q&R. And it was an application by the mum under the Hague Convention for the return of the child E to the Ukraine from the UK. And in early 2022, E came to this country from Ukraine with his mother. And the question arose soon after about E returning to the Ukraine. The father was worried that the mother would take E back to the Ukraine. So he issued proceedings. Now, the law here is straightforward. The Hague Convention applies in respect of a child who is habitually resident in a contracting state immediately before the wrongful retention. So if the court concluded that E was habitually resident in the Ukraine at the time of the father making his application, then the father's actions would amount to a wrongful retention. But if E was not habitually resident in the Ukraine, then the wrongful retention point falls away. Article 12 of the Convention provides that if less than a year has elapsed since the date of the wrongful retention, then the child should be returned forthwith. But Article 13 sets out a number of exceptions, including that the court isn't obliged to return the child if doing so would expose the child to a grave risk of harm or other intolerable situation. So that's the law in a nutshell. Now, the question of habitual residence is pretty uncomplicated. Since the age of three months until he came to this country in April 2022, he lived in the Ukraine. His social and family ties were in the Ukraine. The important day-to-day components of his life were in the Ukraine. While he had started building some roots in England, he retained more roots in the Ukraine at the time of the father's application in June 2022. So then we turn to the father's defence to the application, which was that returning the child would expose him to a grave risk of harm or other intolerable situation. The father argued that the most obvious risk was the war. The implementation of martial law in the Ukraine had also led to a suspension of the civil and family court system, so he would be unable to access the courts to secure a relationship with his son. 
and that the mother was so obstructive that if E went back to the Ukraine, he would be unable to maintain any adequate relationship with E and there would be a grave risk of psychological harm to him of that. The father also argued, I should say, that the Ukraine court system is potentially corrupt. The judge gives short shrift to that argument and notes that corruption is not sufficiently an issue to have prevented Ukraine from becoming a signatory to the 1980 and 1996 Hague Convention. So he parks that. Now, the mother argued that the town where they lived in the Ukraine was so far from the conflict zone that there was no or minimal risk of her or E being exposed to the consequences of armed conflict. She also disputed that the court system had been suspended, and she managed to find some links to online court listings for the Ukrainian courts. So the main issue here really is the risk of armed conflict. The judge emphasizes that we shouldn't be looking at generalities, but the particular risk to this particular child. And he notes that the town to which the mother and E would be returning hasn't been involved in any hostilities, and the nearest hostilities were more than 100 miles away. Schools are open, shops are open, work is carrying on, and so life is going on in that town as normal with minimal disruption. And the town is in a well-protected part of the country in terms of where it is in relation to other countries. The judge notes, quote, barring some remarkable turn of events, it is difficult to foresee how town B would become subject to active conflict, save by a prolonged incursion into the rest of Ukraine, ultimately reaching the far west of the country, close to those borders with the EU and NATO members. It seems to me, therefore, that the risk is very low indeed, although cannot be entirely discounted. If that were to happen, though, there would be a period of time preceding it which would give warning to those in that part of the country the opportunity to leave given that the Hungarian border is close by and the mother is a Hungarian citizen who is entitled to enter that country. The judge didn't think that if combat did threaten the town that the transport system would be disrupted to such an extent that they couldn't leave and the judge also noted that over the years the mother had promoted a relationship with the father and was satisfied that she would continue to do so. The judge also noted as I said what the mother said about the courts being open, and that was supported by the evidence, namely the listings that were up on the internet. So bringing it all together, the judge didn't think the defence under Article 13b was made out, and he ordered E's return to the Ukraine. Now, what do you think about this, Maddie? Because I thought this case was very interesting, but I found paragraphs 59 to 61 of the judgment particularly interesting, including the bit I quoted earlier, because war is a fast-moving situation. No one can deny that. Things change overnight. We have new headlines flooding and constantly updating us about the latest development. So I found it interesting that the judge went so far as to conclude that, that it's difficult to foresee how the town would become subject to active conflict, because he seemed to be treading into territory that might require some, I don't know, geopolitical military expertise. And I thought that the passage which I quoted earlier was quite a bold thing to say indeed what do you think yeah I was thinking that was the bit that caught my ear as well when you were talking about it that's a very bold claim for a judge to make interesting I mean you know I don't claim to be an expert in geopolitical movement in Russia Ukraine Hungary at all but it is an interesting case I think and it particularly I think it is quite interesting in terms of the sort of underpinning principles of the hate convention which is that regardless of our view about how countries deal with their own citizens and their own laws, it's not really for us to say. And it's it's for children who are from there to be governed by those rules. And there are people living in Ukraine. There are lots of families living in Ukraine still in various different towns. Of course, we don't know what this town is. So it's very difficult to say whether or not the judge would have been right about what he said. 
but I can see I can see both sides really I think it, and I think it's a good reminder of the function of the Hague Convention you know it's not for us to determine these decisions just because we think we're in a safer or better governed or more democratic or whatever it might be country it's not for us to say and, and you know maybe there is an argument that this was absolutely the right decision for this child in the face of the evidence that the parents presented but yeah it, it sort of strikes you quite viscerally in terms of sending a child back to what we consider you know over here to be a, a war zone but of course you know there are two sides to it, and I can see that it supports the principles of the Hague Convention quite well, actually. My next case is, so I thought we'd done this before, but I actually think we've just talked about it. I've gone back and checked the episodes and we've not covered it, but I think you and I maybe had a chat about it. But it's about recusal and it's called Re-A-Z brackets a child brackets recusal. And it came out in July of 2022. And I think perhaps I was going to cover it and then didn't or something. It's incredibly long. I'm not going to take you through all of the salient facts, although I would love to because it's really, really interesting. But it would take three hours for me to do that. And I'm not prepared to take up much more of your... It is a Sunday that we're recording again, I'm afraid. So it is a case about Mr Justice Keen and an application for him to recuse himself in the face of a quite complex funnel hearing private children application. Now, to give you some very brief background, the parents had three children, an older child and a set of twins, by surrogacy. Oddly, the surrogate was in the Ukraine, given what we were just talking about. This is pre-war, pre-war Ukraine. And the older child was perfectly fine. Both parents were aware. They were very happy to have this surrogate child. Whilst the surrogate was pregnant slash giving birth to the older child, the mother was communicating directly with the director of the surrogacy agency in Ukraine without the knowledge of the father, asking them to keep the father's gametes or keep the father's genetic material for a slightly longer time and also sending a forged power of attorney to the director of the agency to try and create a second child with a surrogate without telling the father. And that was the circumstance. And those are all findings that have been made by the court previously, findings of forgery and so on. The mother was actively defrauding the father by creating the younger children who happened to be twins by the time they arrived and so on. She did eventually tell him when the surrogate, I think, was about six months pregnant. He understandably was very confused and very, very worried about this. At that point, the relationship between the parents had totally broken down. Mother had made a number of allegations of domestic abuse. She'd made an application for a non-molestation order. She was splitting her time between England and Ukraine to care for the twins, but also leaving the older child in the UK, ostensibly on their own or with relatives for quite long periods of time without the involvement of the father, who she totally excluded from the older child's life. So it's it's a very complex background, all of which had been the subject of multiple fact findings and so on before we get to this stage. It then came to essentially the father's application for contact with the twins, because at the time of this application, the older child is essentially living with the father. It's got to that stage within the hearings. He's having weekly contact with his mother, but he's living with his father, this older child. And it comes to court for a composite final hearing where there has been a guardian appointed on behalf of the children. There's been a psychological assessment by Dr. Petal, who's very good. I, I know her. She's very, very good. And there had been multiple different hearings, multiple fact findings and evidence given before the court. It's before Mr. Justice Keen, I think for most of it, I think it gets bumped up quite early. And he's very familiar with the case and has been involved in the case for a long time. Now, we come to a final hearing. The final hearing takes place in 2021 it's post most of the covid lockdown so everything's sort of moving slowly back to court the mother makes an application through her counsel 
for her evidence to be given remotely. Now, she says this is because of her medical needs, but no medical evidence is ever provided. But she says, I'm, you know, I'm very, very ill and I can't attend. Judge says, no, sorry, um, without medical evidence, I want you to come to court. The mother's counsel makes the application again and says, you know, my very firm instruction is my client's not attending and, and you know, I, I need to make an application for her to give her evidence really. Judge says, not without medical evidence, sorry, I'll see you tomorrow in court. The counsel then makes an application by email to withdraw in acting on behalf of his client because he feels so conflicted about the judge's attitude towards his client judge says look we'll deal with it tomorrow someone's got to turn up and we'll we'll take any applications as you want to to make them the hearing at the center of this appeal takes place over five days from the 18th to the 20th and the 26th and 27th of august 2021 the full hearing has been transcribed and the court of appeal considers the relevant parts of the transcript and relevant evidence because it's all before the court on the time of the appeal the start of the first day, counsel for the mother did not make an application to withdraw as anticipated. Instead, he asked the judge to put back the hearing until 2pm so that he could take further instructions from his client who was attending remotely. Judge agrees. The hearing starts that afternoon. The psychologist, Dr Petal, starts to give evidence and is examined by all the counsel. At the end of the afternoon, mother's counsel makes a further application for his client to give evidence remotely. By that point, a report had been received from the mother's treating consultant, apparently following a request, I think, from the solicitor for the child. And the judge says, look, I think, you know, I think we've come to a stage where I need to make a pragmatic decision. And so fine, the mother can give evidence remotely. But if the technology doesn't work, we have difficulties, I want her in. Mother's counsel says fine. Father then gives evidence. Mother then starts giving evidence. Um, at the start of her evidence, the her counsel asks if they can have breaks every 20 minutes during her evidence. The judge says, we'll do 40 minutes and see how we go. Breaks are subsequently built in. There's not as many as originally thought, but they weren't asked for or requested. They, they are built in. Mother's evidence had not concluded by the end of the third day of the trial and the hearing was adjourned for a further six days, resuming on the 26th of August. On that day, Mother continues her evidence with two breaks in the morning, concluded her evidence shortly after the short adjournment, after which the Guardian is examined and so on. A few minutes into the morning session, there was an exchange between the judge and Mother's counsel in the course of which the judge again admonished counsel for his conduct. This incident is another matter on which the Mother relies on this appeal. Following this, the... Counsel for the mother makes an application for the judge to recuse himself. After further housekeeping matters, the hearing is adjourned again with an order refusing the mother's application to recuse, directing the parties to file written submissions and granting permission for documents to be disclosed to the police and so on. There's various different sort of tangents in the judgment about the role of the police because the mother has made a number of spurious allegations throughout the hearings to the police and they continue to investigate them. And essentially what the judge did was bring the police to court and say, look, how long are you going to give this mother to give you proper evidence? How long is this investigation going to take? Because it's causing real problems with the Children Act proceedings. The police say, eventually, look, we'll give her 28 days to give us the evidence, failing which we'll direct it to the CPS and make a charging decision. Mother files a notice of appeal against the judge's refusal to recuse himself on the 3rd of September, so just after the hearing. In the notice, the mother stated that she was not legally represented and the grounds of appeal consisted of a narrative statement written in the first person. Her complaint is summarised by the following passage. I wish to appeal the decision of the judge not to recuse himself as I feel he has not conducted himself in an impartial way and has been biased in his comments and conduct throughout the hearings. He's made inappropriate comments to me, such as previously calling me malicious and continued to call me a liar on many occasions throughout the hearings. He has also pressured and intimidated me for reporting my abuse to the police. So skipping slightly forward then, we look at what conduct the mother or her counsel complain of in relation to the application to recuse. So... It starts, I think, well, there's a number of bases upon which the application for recusal is made. And the 
judgment takes you through very properly and concisely, if I may say, the law on recusal. So if anyone's got any of these applications kicking about, then have a look at this judgment. It starts at paragraph 56 um, and is really condensed well. So the complaint of bias and the judge's recusal decision are drafted in the following terms after representation is sought and they're redrafted and so on. These are the things that are complained of by the mother. The judge calling the appellant a liar on the 19th of August 2019. The judge casting doubt on the appellant's medical diagnosis in early 2021. Bullying, admonishing and threatening to report the appellant's counsel to the Bar Standards Board on the 25th of March 2021. Pressuring the appellant for reporting allegations of abuse to the police. The making and not making of notes during the evidence. Not allowing the appellant to have regular breaks during the proceedings in August 2021. Treating the respondent father differently. Bullying and threatening the appellant's counsel with the Bar Standards Board on the 27th of August 2021. Misinterpreting and giving a different narrative to the evidence given by the respondent father and the guardian at the hearing in August 2021. The recusal application made by counsel on the 27th of August focused on the matters now set out in the instances 3, 5 and 8 above. So that is bullying, admonishing, threatening to report the appellant's counsel, making and not making of notes and the bullying and threatening of the appellant's counsel with the Bar Standards Board. The extemporary judgment was subsequently incorporated into the third substantive judgment handed down on the 15th of November, and I want to read it out because I think it's interesting. The background to this application commenced at the directions hearing on the 25th of March 2021. Mother's counsel had filed and served a position statement on behalf of the mother. I considered a number of passages in this position statement to be rude and impertinent to the court. I raised this matter with mother's counsel at the commencement of this directions hearing. I told counsel that I considered his position statement to be impertinent and imprudent, and if I received a position statement like this from him in the future, I would consider reporting him to the BSB. During the early part of the mother's evidence, there were occasions where she gave no or no satisfactory answer to questions. I told the mother that I'd written down in my notebook in order to give her the opportunity to reflect on her evidence and give a response. Mother's counsel objected to me taking this course of action, and so I stopped doing so. During the course of mother's counsel's cross-examination of the guardian, he put a proposition to her which did not reflect her evidence. I raised the matter with mother's counsel, and in the exchange that followed, there came a point when I considered he was being disrespectful. I told him so, and invited him to continue with his cross-examination of the guardian. He did not do so. I repeated the request, and on the final occasion, I did so in an emphatic manner. He did not do so, and in turn said I was bullying him. I told him that he was coming close to being reported to the BSB in respect of his conduct in the hearing. Shortly thereafter, mother's counsel made a personal statement to the court relating to my comment about a potential referral to the BSB, and a risk that the mother may, as a result, have lost confidence in him, he confirmed she had not. It was against this background that Mother's Counsel made an application for me to recuse myself. He relied essentially on three grounds. The manner in which I had treated him at the directions hearing referred to above and at this hearing. That the mother considered I was biased against her, and that any fair-minded and informed observer would conclude there was a real possibility that I was biased against the mother. And that I treated the mother unfairly. I refused the application. In giving a short extemporary judgment, I said, I have an application to recuse myself from this case made on behalf of the mother. I have well in mind the test to be applied from Porter and McGill, whether a fair-minded observer would consider that the court was biased. The application is essentially based on the mother's perception that I am biased because I have made findings against her or I have held her to account to answers that she has not satisfactorily given to the court. There is no basis for accusing oneself. Reference was made by mother's counsel to the occasions on a previous occasion and today when I had to admonish him for rude or offensive behaviour. I have only had to do that on one previous occasion in the 20 years that I have sat as a full-time or part-time judge. This application for me to recuse myself is utterly and totally without any merit whatsoever and is refused. I note in so finding that the mother in the course of this case has perceived correspondence from the Guardian to be a threat to stop her contact when no fair-minded person reading that document could possibly conclude the same. Therefore, her perception, it would appear, is skewed and is no basis for me to recuse myself after conducting this case for so many years. Application dismissed. 
Now, at the start of the appeal, leading counsel on behalf of the mother who came in for the purposes of the appeal indicated that they would not be pursuing instance one, which is the instance of the judge calling the appellant a liar, and would not be pursuing instance six because the transcript did not support the same. Instance six is not allowing the appellant to have regular breaks during the proceedings. So those are gone. The remaining instances seem to fall naturally into two groups, which have a rather different character. Accordingly, we will deal separately with those which in turn on the judge's interventions in the evidence or in one instance, his attitude to an application in a way which would show apparent bias to the mother and those which relate to his criticisms of the mother's counsel. Now, I want to try and wrap this up in a way that's satisfactory because the judgment is really, really long and there's huge passages from the initial hearing in there and a lot of Mr Justice Keane's extemporary judgments and a lot of back and forth with the judge and the witness. And it's really, really interesting. So please, please do read the whole thing because I think it gives a real flavour for family court, perhaps in a way that not a lot of judgments do. And it really gives a flavour for what happened at the first instance, which is now leading to the appeal. So this is the discussion from the Court of Appeal about, about the complaints made by mother and her counsel. Before turning to consider whether individually or cumulatively the instances relied on by the mother give rise to apparent bias, we identify a number of important points which the fair-minded and informed observer would take into account. First, by the date of the hearing in August 2021, these proceedings have been going on for a very long time, the child arrangements application having been made in March 2019. Secondly, by August 2021, the judge was very familiar with the case and all its complex and unusual features. He had conducted two substantive hearings plus a number of case management hearings and delivered two lengthy judgments. It was unsurprising that he had formed some views about a number of issues. It was equally unsurprising that he indicated what those views were. In doing so... <laughs> He was acting in what Sir Thomas Bingham described as the English tradition, which sanctions and even encourages a measure of disclosure by the judges of his current thinking. It does not follow from the fact that the judge disclosed his current thinking that his mind was closed, which I think is really important to remember when you're in court. Thirdly, in his two earlier judgments, the judge had made a number of serious findings against the mother. In particular, he'd found that she had fabricated allegations of domestic abuse and that she had, through deception, arranged for his genetic material to be used in the second surrogacy. There had been no appeal against these findings. The mother's dishonest and manipulative conduct was therefore part of the established factual matrix of the case. Again, important to remember if findings had been made. It was inevitable that the judge would have his earlier findings in mind at all points when making case management decisions and considering the ongoing substantive issues. His findings were reinforced by the clear-sighted and authoritative analysis and recommendations expressed by Dr. Petal, the psychologist, which we have cited above. It's in the judgment if you want to read it. Fourthly, the obligation to deal with a case fairly and to ensure that the parties are on an equal footing does not mean that the judge is obliged to treat the parties in precisely the same way. By this stage, the principal aim of proceedings was to resolve a dispute about the children's living arrangements and determine whether and if so, when and how the older child should be introduced to the twins. The psychologist had made a series of recommendations and had also identified aspects of the attitudes of both parents which made it more difficult to achieve a resolution. Fifth, in considering the proceedings as a whole to determine whether there was a real possibility that the court was biased, the fair-minded and informed observer would look at the judgment delivered at the end of the hearing under scrutiny and at the extent to which it was supported by the evidence. We recognise that as Lady Justice Black, as was observed in Rigi, the careful and cogently written judgment cannot redeem a hearing in which a judge had intervened to the extent of prejudicing the exploration of the evidence. Nevertheless, in considering the question of apparent bias in this case, it is relevant to note that the judge rejected a number of submissions made on behalf of the father. In particular, he refused to make a final child arrangements order, rejected the father's contention that the older child should not meet the twins at this stage, and dismissed the father's application for an order restricting the mother's exercise of PR. So essentially what the court is saying is, look, yeah, 
there were things that he did to the mother that he didn't do to the father, but there were also substantive applications made by the father that the judge dismissed, and rightly so, which does not indicate a bias, particularly in favour of the father or against the mother. They do go on to look at the treatment of the mother's counsel, which is that the interventions in the course of the father's evidence were sort of, in the course of the mother's evidence, amounted to essentially bullying. And they reject the argument that the interventions during the mother's counsel's cross-examination about when they should be introduced and trying to sort of stop mother's counsel from cross-examining had any substantive merit whatsoever. In our view, they say there was nothing wrong or improper in the judge's interventions during the guardian's evidence or anything about those interventions which might lead a fair-minded and informed observer to conclude there was a real risk of bias. And therefore, having considered these issues both individually and collectively, we are satisfied that they would not lead a fair-minded and informed observer to conclude that there was a real risk that the judge was biased against the mother. There is no doubt that the judge was very critical of the mother's conduct and they expressed that criticism in forthright terms during her evidence and at other points in the hearing. But looking at the proceedings as a whole, those criticisms have to be seen in the context of his findings and the earlier judgments about her dishonest and manipulative behaviour. As noted above, bias means a prejudice against one party or its cases for reasons unconnected with the merits of the case. Here, the judge's criticisms of the mother during her evidence were plainly based on the merits of the case, which included serious, unappealed findings he had made against her. In reaching that conclusion, we take into account the Guardian's opinion about the matter as expressed by the skeleton argument to the court. The Guardian was, of course, present during the hearing, and we have no doubt that she is a fair-minded and informed observer. But she is not an independent observer. In one important respect, her evidence about the mother's actions was rightly criticised by the judge. Her views about the merits of this appeal are to be taken into account, but they are not decisive. Finally, in relation to the bullying, admonishing and threatening to report the appellant's counsel to the BSB, the transcript of the hearing, again, it goes into a lot of detail and it's worth having a look at if this is something that you're interested in. And it was something that was discussed at the FLBA conference yesterday that I'm going to come on to later. But essentially, the court says that the on behalf of the father, counsel for the father says he did not argue that the judge's reference to the BSB had either been justified or proportionate. He suggested, however, that the fair-minded and informed observer would be aware that against the background of his findings of dishonesty against the mother, the judge had required proper evidence about her medical condition and would therefore be surprised at the tone of the position statement. And three, would note that the comment about the BSB did not prevent the mother's case from being fully argued at the hearing. He would also note that despite admonishing counsel for the remarks made in the position statement, the judge acceded to the mother's request for an adjournment. And again, they go into some detail about the appropriateness of the reference to the BSB. I think everyone's kind of agreed that it probably shouldn't have happened. Nonetheless, did it prevent the fairness of the hearing? And the answer is essentially, according to the Court of Appeal, that no, it did not. But the the court do go on to sort of say that what happened at this hearing probably shouldn't have happened. And the exchanges between counsel and the judge leave a lot to be desired. But they do actually support the judge in a number of his comments in relation to what the judge said about mother's counsel being disrespectful and impertinent. The correct response from an advocate when his recollection of the evidence is questioned by the judge is to seek to clarify the position, most obviously by establishing exactly what the issue is and asking that the judge's note be compared with those of counsel and solicitors. So there are fair criticisms contained within the judgment of mother's counsel at the hearing. It's clear that his disrespectful response caused the judge momentarily to lose his temper. Even without the tape, it is plain that his response was angry. And that is confirmed by the Guardian's recollection. And he replies in the course of the following exchange, culminating in the observation that Mother's Counsel was coming close to being reported to the BSB, show that he did not immediately recover his poise. That exchange in its turn clearly unsettled Mother's Counsel and caused him to become heated. Although the judge tried to close the incident down and return to the evidence, Mother's Counsel would not at first do so as the judge asked. He requested a break, which the judge refused. 
Although Mother's counsel resumed his questions to the witness, he obviously remained troubled, um, hence his personal statement a few minutes later. This was clearly a regrettable incident. It was started by Mother's counsel's disrespectful response or responses for which the judge was fully entitled to admonish him. However, the way that the judge did so raised the temperature and clearly unsettled Mother's counsel. With the benefit of hindsight, we believe he should have taken up the suggestion of a short break for cooling off. We have also observed that it's generally inadvisable to warn of the possibility of a reference to the BSB in the course of the hearing, and that was particularly so here when feelings were running high. In relation to both groups of instances, we have concluded that they would not lead the fair-minded and informed observer to conclude that there was a real possibility that the judge was biased against the mother. For the avoidance of doubt, that remains our view, even if all seven instances are considered cumulatively. It is for those reasons that we concluded there was no basis upon which the judge should have recused himself, and the appeal is dismissed. Oh, that case makes me cringe. I have read it because it's really juicy reading from top to bottom. But oh, it's such uncomfortable reading to see the exchanges between Ian and Mother's counsel. Definitely have a full read of the judgment. It's incredibly long, but also incredibly interesting. And there's a lot to draw from it as well. Yeah. And I think what I'm going to try and do is find a successful recusal application somewhere for us to discuss, because I've only ever seen unsuccessful ones. And I don't necessarily disagree with the Court of Appeals approach here, because I think it's entirely right that the substantive merits of the case probably did lead to the conclusions that the judge rightly made. But I would be interested to see in what circumstances a judge would recuse themselves. And of course, for any non-lawyers or, or students listening, a recusal application is made to the judge in which you are asking them to recuse. It's not made to a different judge. So you're essentially saying to the judge, I don't want you to hear this case anymore. And could you decide for yourself whether your own conduct is incorrect, which in and of itself, I think, is quite a difficult balance. But it's got lots of law in there. There's loads and loads of extracts from the hearing. If you've got a spare sort of three hours, it's about 53 pages long, multiple, multiple, multiple paragraphs. But it's really worth a read, particularly for, I think, juniors and particularly for judges. So, yeah, do have a listen. Thanks for that, Maddie. So moving to my final case, which is the judgment of Mrs. Justice Levin in the creatively titled The Mother versus the Father, The Mother and the Father, which is a judgment from my part of the world in the Midlands. It was an appeal against a decision of magistrates sitting in Stoke-on-Trent not to allow either parent to be cross-examined, and that was then appealed by the mother. So in this case, the child at the heart of the proceedings was an eight-year-old girl who's called X in the judgment. The mother applied for X to live with her and moved to a school closer to her, and the father cross-applied for X to remain living with him and to remain at her current school. Kafkas completed a Section 7 report which recommended that X should stay with her dad and have contact with her mum. The mother argued that there should be a fact-finding hearing, the court didn't order one, so a final hearing was listed. And the justices at that final hearing determined that the final hearing should go ahead without either parent being entitled to cross-examine the other. The court did, however, hear oral evidence from the Kafkas officer who is the author of the Section 7 report. The mother indicated at the final hearing that she wanted to appeal, so the justices adjourned the case pending her application to appeal. I should say that that approach was a bit odd, and Mrs Justice Levin picks up on it, and she notes that the court should consider whether it's more proportionate to carry on with the hearing, have an outcome, and then if any party wants to appeal afterwards, they can. But if the grounds of appeal fall away, you're not building in delay into the determination of the case. So the mother argued that the case management decision not to allow the parents to be cross-examined was so unfair as to be procedurally wrong. The mother's case was that there were specific issues that she wanted to challenge the father on, and the court needed to hear evidence and cross-examination on those issues. 
So the sorts of issues she was talking about included an allegation that the child X was being bullied at her current school, that the mother was X's primary carer until 2019, the importance of X attending a Roman Catholic school and some other things. So Mrs. Justice Levin goes back to first principles. Rule 22.1 of the Family Procedure Rules sets out the court's power to control the evidence, which includes the nature of the evidence it requires to decide the issues. Rule 1.1 of the Family Procedure Rule sets out the overriding objective, which is the overriding objective to deal with cases justly, and that includes dealing with the case in ways which are proportionate to the nature, importance and complexity of the issues. Mrs. Justice Levin wasn't convinced by the mother's arguments, and she determined that the court's decision not to allow the parents to be cross-examined fell within the scope of its case management powers. She clarifies that there is no right to cross-examine by any party, and that's made clear by Rule 22.1. So it's open to the court to limit cross-examination and indeed exclude it when it's fair and proportionate to do so. The judge went through the issues the mother said that the court should have heard evidence about, and she wasn't convinced that any of them were particularly determinative or that they couldn't have been dealt with in submissions. And she concludes that there was no error by the lay justices. The court had statements, written statements from the parties and knew their positions. The parents were importantly able to cross-examine the CAFCAS officer and they could put any material areas of disagreement to her. Mrs. Justice Levin wasn't convinced by mother's argument and her skeleton argument that the bench prejudged the case and accepted the CAFCAS report before hearing from the officer, and that the court made clear that the CAFCAS officer should be and would be cross-examined. And this bit, I think, is interesting. So she says, I appreciate that it's hard for parents to accept, but it's likely that a court facing this type of issue will put the most weight on the CAFCAS officer's evidence. They are an independent person with great expertise in this field and great skill in talking to children. However much as the parents love their children and wish the best for them, they will often not be the most objective witnesses. As Miss Wills puts it, quote, both parents come with their own spin. It was entirely open to the court to take the view that they needed to hear the CAFCAS officer on this matter, but that the oral evidence of the parents would not be of material assistance. We tend to warn clients who want to challenge the evidence of the CAFCAS officer at a final hearing that we will be facing an uphill battle. And I think that that passage from Mrs. Justice Levin is useful to refer to when having that conversation. So I think this is a super useful case. As advocates, we may fall into the thinking that every material area of disagreement needs to be put to a witness so that they can respond. Otherwise, there's a risk of unfairness to them. This is a reminder that that isn't the case. There is no right to cross-examine and the court won't be dictated to by the parties and will take the most proportionate course of action to determine what it needs to determine. Yeah, I think we can all do well to remember that. I think there tends to be there, there tends to be a view, I think it potentially at the bar or potentially with representatives, that every single piece of evidence needs to be challenged in a substantive way until absolutely everything has been said in court. And actually, I'm not sure that's always the most appropriate or proportionate way to proceed, particularly in cases where there may be a suitable outcome that can be reached on some issues without needing to do that. So I think it's always important to remember as well that the court ultimately has, has its say about what is going to happen. And just because you want something to happen or you think it's fair doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. So yeah, helpful. My third and final case, because I've realised I've talked for a long time about recusal, is the case of Gallagher and Gallagher, which I don't think we've talked about yet, but came out obviously in 2022, uh, June 2022, in relation to reporting restrictions for financial remedy cases. The reason I picked it is obviously a little bit off the wall for this podcast because we hate talking about money cases, but 
It's a really interesting judgment about reporting restrictions and anonymity within the financial remedy courts. Now, this is obviously an enormously big topic at the moment. It's something that the president himself has now created a working group for and is trying to push for a lot more. We talked about his transparency guidelines in 2022 on the show anyway. Um, and it's something that Malvika is very heavily involved with. And any questions about it should definitely be sent to her rather than me. But the Transparency Project is now an approved educational charity from the president and has the right to attend hearings as a legal blogger and all of these different things that are causing the baton of transparency to be pushed very firmly into the family justice system and try and open some of the cracks. But a lot of the debate around it has been around children proceedings, because, of course, there is a, a very clear view that children proceedings being heard in public or private details about children being shared is, is not appropriate in a lot of cases. In, and, of course, Article 8 versus Article 10, Article 6 and so on. But the question really is, how does that relate to financial remedy proceedings, which are still heard in the family court and therefore are still technically heard in private? How do the court manage reporting restrictions, anonymity and so on in the face of a financial remedy dispute which does not solely or mainly concern children. And that was the question put to Mr Justice Mostyn in the case of Gallagher and Gallagher. Now I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this case because it caused quite the stir when it came out and the reason it did that is because in true Mostyn style he goes through with a fine tooth comb the history, the themes, the threads, the pieces of statute, procedural rules, case law, common law, that tie together where we now are in relation to reporting restrictions on financial remedy cases. So essentially, in this case, the husband, Mr. Gallagher, as you can probably tell from the fact we know his name, he failed in his application for an anonymity order. But Mr. Gallagher applies for a reporting restriction order, alternatively an anonymity order, which if granted would constitute a derogation from the rule or principle of open justice, which is the first paragraph of this case. Now, what Mr. Justice Mostyn does is go through as I say, with a fine-tooth comb, and again, this is a very long judgment, it's 25 pages long, so I'm going to try and keep it as brief as I can, but goes through the principles which apply to applications for anonymity and to applications for reporting restriction orders in financial remedy cases. And he starts from the very start of the era of judicial divorce and carries all the way through to 2022 when looking at what rules and laws apply to this question. And he looks at the FPR, he looks at the CPR, he looks at the common law, he looks at case law, he looks at the Judicial Proceedings Regulation of Reports Act 1926, all of these different types of things that most of you will never and hopefully will never have to hear of. But the judgment in itself is written in a very clear and concise way and, and takes a lot of, I'm sure, took a lot of thought and a lot of preparation to prepare. And one of the things that I think is really important about reading it is it does talk about the importance of open justice and the importance of transparency, because I think a lot of people still are quite confused about why we're having this push for transparency. At paragraph 11, Mr. Justice Mostyn says this, why is open justice so important? Insistence on it is not an idiosyncratic dogma of the judges. Far from it. It has been a matter for social concern down the ages. In times past, social commentators would regularly decry secret court proceedings, particularly as practised on the continent. For example, in 1766, Danes Barrington, the renowned lawyer, antiquary and biologist, wrote disdainfully in his observations on the statutes, chiefly the more ancient from Magna Charta to 21st James I, I do not recollect to have met with any of the European laws with any injunction that all courts should be held ostis apertis, except in those of the Republic of Lucca. He then goes on to say, of course, the most famous denouncer of secret justice was Jeremy Bentham. In volume four of his works, 1843, he issued his renowned Philippics. In the darkness of secrecy, sinister interest and evil in every shape have full swing. 
Only in proportion as publicity has place can any of the checks applicable to judicial injustice operate. Where there is no publicity, there is no justice. Publicity is the very soul of justice. It is the keenest spur to exertion and the surest of all guards against improbity. It keeps the judge himself while trying under trial. The security of securities is publicity. And it, it does go on for some time like this. Um, it looks at Henry Hallam in the Constitutional History of England, 1827. It looks at the rule of law by Alan Lane, 2010. And it looks at the preeminence of the common law rule, which has been emphasised time and time again by the judiciary about open justice. And the words express a principle at the heart of our system of justice and vital to the rule of law. The rule of law is a fine concept, but fine words butter no parsnips. It's a really fantastic judgment. You've got to read it. Just the way it's written is, is amazing. It really does look at how we got to where we are and, and how we can justify, essentially, by rote and anonymizing financial remedy proceedings in the way that we do, because it's very common. You know, we do it quite a lot. We might get names, but we anonymize most of the information. And a lot of them are still just letters of the alphabet or, you know, place names or whatever. So it goes through, as I say, all of the history of how we got to where we are. It looks at hearings in private. It looks at why hearings are in private. It looks at the difference between hearings being in private and hearings being reported on and looks at whether anonymity can really achieve transparency. And one of the interesting parts of it is at paragraph 35, where Mr. Webster Casey, now QC at the time, argued for on behalf of the anonymity order that an anonymised judgment would achieve sufficient transparency. It would show the world, he said, through Mr. Farmer's report, how the family court deals with these cases. He suggests that certain parts of the evidence, namely the jointly instructed tax council submissions as to the degree of risk the husband faces from HMRC, the risks that the husband faces from the lawsuit against him in Ireland, and the evidence of the expert accountants as to the value of the business plainly must be the subject of a reporting restriction order. He argues that were such evidence recorded in a confidential annex which could not be published, then paradoxically the result would be less transparent than if the whole judgment were anonymised. In the latter situation, all the confidential evidence would be available for the world to see or be anonymised. The world would be able to see fully how the court had reached its decision. In contrast, a public judgment, which the world would see with a confidential annex, which the world would not see, would not afford insight into the court's workings. Mr Justice Mostyn disagrees with these arguments. First and foremost, he agrees that Mr Farmer, that if very rich businessmen are in court fighting at vast expense with their ex-spouses over millions, then the public has the right to know who they are and what they are fighting about. The judgment should therefore name names. Redactions can be made of commercially sensitive information, but only to the extent that they are strictly necessary. But the redactions should not ever obscure the way the court has decided the case. In any event, Mr Justice Boston says, I'm satisfied that in this case I can place the commercially sensitive information that ought not to be reported in a confidential annex to the published judgment without offending its vital principle. Fundamentally, Mr Webster's submissions fail to recognise that anonymization is a direct derogation from Article 10 rights to the public at large and must be treated as such. As is commonplace, submissions suffer by tacitly asking the wrong question, why is it in the public interest that the party should be named, rather than the right one, which is why is it in the public interest that the party should be anonymous? The submissions also pay no regard to the requirement in Section 12.4 of the Human Rights Act, which requires me to have particular regard to the importance of the Article 10 right to freedom of expression. I also agree with Mr Farmer that anonymization provides an illusory protection against identification. He told me that he can almost always work out quickly and easily the identities of the parties in an anonymised judgment. I myself am aware of one case where my judgment was carefully anonymised by HMRC. HMRC quickly worked out who the husband was and initiated an inquiry into his tax affairs. The impossibility of achieving complete invisibility is no doubt one of the reasons that the 10 largest reported ancillary relief awards were published without anonymization. The weakness of the protection conferred by anonymization is an additional matter to be brought into the balancing exercise. There is then an argument, which I think is quite interesting and something that we will have seen, or you may have seen the financial remedy barristers discussing, which is that Mr Southgate 
KC now, but QC at the time, submits that to allow more sunlight into the family court will allow some litigants effectively to blackmail the other party into settling the case at an unjustly high price in order to avoid a public hearing and the unwelcome exposure of skeletons in the cupboard, and that this possible practice of itself would be a good reason to ordain anonymity generally. Mr Justice Mostyn firmly disagrees with this argument. The constitutional principle of open justice obviously cannot be put aside by anecdotal gossip about the motives of some litigants who've settled their cases. One can confidently assert that if this practice were a common phenomenon in litigation, generally the civil courts would be empty and they are not. So it looks at all the different competing principles about open justice. It's a really important judgment if you're in any way interested in transparency. And ultimately, the, Mr. Justin Boston says, look, there's no reason to anonymize this. I'm going to publish it all. And anything market sensitive, which can't be published because the parties have companies and business interests and so on, will be put in a confidential annex. I think it's really well done. It's very Mostyn, but it's very readable. And it goes, honestly, all the way back to the Magna Carta when looking at why we have rights of anonymity and why we need them. And I think that sentence that he sets out in response to Mr. Webster Casey's submissions in relation to the right question is, why is it in the public interest that the parties are anonymous rather than why is it in the public interest that the parties should be named? Um, and I think a lot of us, because we're family lawyers, it's innate in us that we are private about what we do, not necessarily secret, but private that we need to twist our thinking slightly and start looking at this from a human rights perspective and also from the perspective of, as Mr Farmer, I think quite bluntly put it, you know, if rich businessmen are fighting at court at vast expense to the public purse, what are they fighting about and how is the court going to deal with it? We're entitled to know that, or even if we as barristers find that slightly unpalatable. It's really interesting and I would urge everyone to read it. Yeah, tell me Mr Justice Mostyn wrote that judgment without telling me that Mr Justice Mostyn wrote that judgment. There are some really interesting pieces online that have been written by Lucy Reed, the chair of the Transparency Project, which I will link in the show notes, and also Polly Morgan, who's one of the other trustees of the Transparency Project on Gallagher and Gallagher. So I will link those articles because they're super helpful, digestible summaries if you don't feel like reading the entire 20 plus page judgment. So thanks for that, Maddie. Moving to book podcast talk recommendations. So I read in this episode is the Nuffield Family Justice Observatory's report, Mothers in Recurrent Care Proceedings, New Evidence for England and Wales. Now, Maddie and I have spoken time and time again on this podcast about cycles of care involvement and mothers who have been in care proceedings once returning to court in a new set of proceedings and losing multiple children into care. The report finds that in England and Wales, one in four women are at risk of returning to court for subsequent care proceedings within 10 years of their first appearance in care proceedings. One in five who return to court with a new child, so not the child who was the subject of the previous proceedings, are at risk of returning to court within 10 years. And the risk of returning is highest in the first three years following the initial proceedings. The risk of returning to court is also higher for mothers who first gave birth when young and if the child in the first set of proceedings is subject to a placement order. The report makes a really, really interesting reading. They go on to make recommendations to try and create a plan to reduce recurrent care proceedings, which includes intensive support to parents who have had children removed to help rebuild their lives. Maddie and I have spoken about this before, about the support for parents after a child is removed. It just falls off a cliff. They go from having quite an intensive support system around them in proceedings, including lawyers advocating for their interests, to the child being removed, care proceedings ending, and then the parents being left out in the cold, and then they are extremely vulnerable to the same cycle happening all over again. So do read that report. It's very interesting. It's got some really interesting data and recommendations. Yeah, I completely agree. Endorse all of that. And I think it's still an issue that we 
aren't properly grappling with, both in public law and private law, you know, parents are often left with these very complex orders and they're not given time for them to properly bed in. They're not given time for them to properly adjust to their new regimes. And lawyers have to step away, you know, by virtue of the commercial reality of their role. And there is very little support provided by courts or by any other people to assist. Although I'm hearing a lot about different charities up and down the country, particularly, I think there's one in Kent called Dads United, which is doing amazing work about supporting parents post-court. And I think it's always worth, if you're worried about a client post-hearing, to do a little bit of research into resources available in that area, because I'm, I'm sure there are lots, it's just that we're not aware of them. My recommendation, I'm afraid, is some guidance from the President. Um, it's the view from the President's Chambers, November 2022. Uh, I think it might have got lost in the sort of flood of the end of the year, because it came out on the 29th of November, and it's about the PLO. Now, last year, I went to both the Association of Lawyers for Children conference, and I went to the Family Law Bar Association conference yesterday in Cambridge, and the President was at both. And this is the real drum that is being banged by the President at the moment. And it, I must admit, it's it's something that I really agree with and endorse, which is the importance of proper PLO. Now, the PLO, for those of you that don't know, is the public law outline. And it is what is meant to happen basically before a case comes to court, but also during the case, a public law children case. The headline points that the president sets out are that 10 years ago, when the Norgrove Family Justice Review was undertaken, the average time taken for care proceedings before a judge was 61 weeks. That was the average. The Norgrove Review concluded that delay has become habitual and recommended that there should be statutory time limit of 26 weeks, which was then implemented, as we all know, by Section 14 of the Children and Family Act 2014. At the time, reducing the length of care proceedings was considered very ambitious but we've all moved towards it and we'll all be aware of the ways in which the court has tried to do that which has led to a significant reduction in the time it takes for cases to be heard now the president also explains that before and during and after the covid crisis the public law working group which is chaired by mr justice keen worked to develop a scheme aimed at reducing the number of new applications in public law section 31 applications by properly implementing the plo and doing a lot of work pre-proceedings and I think this is something that solicitors, I mean, it's very difficult for barristers to be to be doing anything about because obviously we only come in when things are in court. But it is a way to push the local authority into action early doors, making sure that solicitors attend PLO meetings, making sure that pre-proceedings assessments and proper special guardianship and viability assessments are undertaken is all really important. And if a case comes to court for the first time before a judge and none of those things have been done, it's also on a barrister to say, well, actually, this is something the local authority need to really think about. Perhaps we should consider adjourning and coming back when they've got the evidence they need, freeing up that court time trying to come back and work with this family in a proper way. But if you're in any way affiliated or associated with the implementation or use of the PLO, please read the president's view on it, because it really is something that's becoming problematic. And it doesn't help families, it doesn't keep children where they should be, and it doesn't help parents get the help that they need from the local authority if we're all rushing to court without appropriate evidence and without the appropriate timescales. So yeah, have a read of it and decry local authorities, I'm sure, once again, which I think we've defended and admonished on this podcast in equal measure. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Okay, so tweet of the week. This is a tweet that I saw a couple of days ago, and it's from someone called Jason at JSN Barn. At a child protection conference I chaired recently, the family travelled to the office, but all of the professionals joined virtually. The dad quite rightly said to me, I thought all these people are deeply concerned about my child. Why aren't they here? And this is something I'm not sure if I've spoken about before. I think I might have done about the importance of not letting remote communication take precedence over actual connection with human beings whose children we're meant to be looking after. And that applies to barristers equally as to solicitors and social workers and professionals and guardians and so on. I am deeply concerned 
about the continuing expectation that care proceedings can be dealt with effectively and justly when they are remote, particularly when you are acting for a parent who may not have access to a device, who may not feel comfortable speaking on the phone, who may have additional learning needs, who may, well, simply by virtue of being in proceedings, be extremely vulnerable. I have always much preferred meeting my clients. I've always much preferred being in the same room as them, even if we can't go to court. Not always. And often, you know, I'm not going to say I'm unhappy to be at home when I'm doing cases. But I think for particularly vulnerable people and particularly for people whose children's welfare is in question or at risk, try and meet them, please, at least once. I think it would be really important. And courts are I mean, I don't know what's happening in the Midlands, but in London, we are being told in no uncertain terms that we are back to business in terms of attending court hearings, particularly in relation to care proceedings. I think for this exact reason, but attending remotely, I think, does have an impact on the people that we're trying to serve. Um, And if you have to attend remotely, of course, that's fine. But please try and make the same connection that you would make when you're at court, because I think it does make a difference. And I think it helps people build confidence in you and therefore you feel more able to do your job. Yeah, my friend Lola actually tweeted, what do you call it, tweet quoted this um, particular tweet. And she wrote the last care final hearing I did. I was at court with a mother who I represented. Everyone else was at home. There's something callous about a parent having to go to court when a local authority has applied to remove their child, but nobody representing the local authority being present. I definitely think that since the onset of the pandemic, there has become this increasing practice of professionals asking for permission to attend remotely because they become comfortable with it. It's convenient. It allows them to get on with more work at home. I just don't think that we should be falling into those sorts of patterns because I completely agree that if you turn up to court with your client representing a parent, they expect everyone else to be as invested in their child and in their child's care plan as they are. And I think that there's something, I I completely agree with Lola, the word callous. There is something callous about sitting at home, comfortable in your sofa, whilst the parents are at court battling for their children's lives. I, I really think that the imbalance of power is is really emphasised as well because it's almost saying that there's a difference in treatment between the people who are participating in care proceedings and I don't think it's appropriate. Um, so I think that's a really good tweet. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. My tweet of the week is, well, tweets of the week relate to the recent losses that have been suffered by the bar with the deaths of Mark George Casey, Head of Chambers at Garden Court North, District Judge Matthew Maudsley and Barrister James Gelsthorpe of New Park Court Chambers. Neither Maddie or I knew any of them, but we were both moved by the outpouring of stories, grief by people across the profession, mourning but also celebrating the lives of three extremely accomplished lawyers, but more importantly, men who seem to be brimming over with kindness and potential. So New Park Court Chambers announced the following. New Park Court Chambers are deeply saddened to announce the news of the tragic death of Barrister James Gelsthorpe over the weekend. James will be remembered as good-humoured, hardworking, and full of potential, giving his time in the running of Chambers and the Circuit Charity. All of our thoughts are with his family, those close to him, and his many friends and colleagues at this very difficult time. In an email that was sent out by Michelle Healy Casey, the leader of the Midland Circuit, she wrote, it's with great sadness that I write to inform you of the news of the death of District Judge Matthew Maudsley, who died on Friday. I can't remember the particular date that she sent this. Judge Maudsley was until recently a practicing barrister in Manchester with an incredibly successful practice in personal injury and CICA work. 
Called in 1991, he was appointed a deputy district judge in 2019 and then appointed to become a full-time district judge in Birmingham from the 5th of December 2022. He was a well-known figure on Twitter, engaging everyone with his good humour and kindness and proved equally as popular when he began to sit. A number of judges have been in touch to comment on what a wonderful colleague he was. He was clearly respected and admired by both bar and bench. He was a father to three children who are in our thoughts at this time. He sadly leaves a wife and siblings too. Our hearts go out to all of them. Whilst Judge Maudsley had only been on the Birmingham bench a short time, he has already made a lasting impact. His death is felt keenly by his colleagues and we extend our sympathies to judges who have suffered this devastating loss in the week before Christmas. And finally, at Tom George Film, who is Mark George Casey's son, posted this on Twitter, which I have to admit moved me to tears. I'm very sorry to have to tell you that my old man, Mark George, passed away yesterday after a short fight with a particularly militant strain of cancer. I don't usually share much personal stuff on here, but he weirdly loved this platform and took great satisfaction from having way more followers than me and my brothers. The man was a walking contradiction in the best possible way. A socialist and staunch trade unionist with a Cambridge education, he spent most of his life working as a criminal barrister at Garden Court Chambers, except for Saturday afternoons when he could be found shouting at referees at Stamford Bridge. When he worked on the Hillsborough Inquiry, he remarked, only half in jest, that it brought together two of his life's great passions, football and nailing bent coppers. One of my earliest memories is him taking me and one of my brothers to see Arthur Scargill speak. One of the most boring things you could ever ask a seven-year-old to do. He also introduced me to Pink Floyd, Prince Buster and the KLF. He played the guitar and secretly had a decent voice, much higher than you might imagine. He was a creature of habit. I estimate that we ate at Pizza Express more than 300 times. He spent much of his spare time fighting the death penalty with Amicus and defending the right of everyone to free legal counsel here in the UK. He was fascinated by Old English, Norse history and the ancient standing stones, once touring around the UK to see them all. As a teenager, he nearly became a priest, but then became a Marxist instead. He loved Chelsea FC, but could not give a flying fuck about international football and rarely watched England or even Scotland, where his mum was from. But he would look out for Stenhouse Meyer FC's result every week because he liked the name. Rest up, you incredibly smart silly Billy. So those are my tweets of the week. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry for the incredibly long episode. And we will see you hopefully in a couple of weeks with a secret special guest.